Welcome to another episode of Un Livre Ouvert with me, Avanti Victoire. For those of you who've just tuned in, Un Livre Ouvert is about exploring different views on various issues, including films. I'd like to dedicate today's podcast to the Dutch nuclear proliferation whistleblower Fritz Wehrmann. By now, you've probably guessed the film I'm going to talk a bit about is Oppenheimer. I did enjoy the film, but how I wish they had shortened it. That said, I shouldn't complain about the length. I grew up watching Bollywood films and they remain painfully long. The film traverses the thorny issue of McCarthyism without explicitly spelling it out. For those of you who are unaware, shortly after World War II, Senator McCarthy rose to fame amidst widespread anti-Russian sentiment. In 1947, President Truman signed Executive Order 9835, known as the Loyalty Order. Politicians like Senator McCarthy built their careers during this epoch. It was during this period that the Red Scare, meaning the fear of falling into the trap of communism or subverting American democracy, was closely monitored by loyalty panels. Executive Order 9835 allowed for the creation of departmental loyalty boards to conduct loyalty screenings of federal employees or even job applicants. That was not it. Order 9835 gave rise to the Attorney General's list of subversive organisations known as the AGLOSO. But let's leave that for another day. <laughs> so the film is set in the background of McCarthyism that casts a shadow on Oppenheimer's loyalty. The obvious reason for questioning Oppenheimer's loyalty was the fact that many of the members of the Manhattan Project were, in fact, left-leaning. And then, of course, there was Oppenheimer's brother, Frank Oppenheimer, who had at some point been part of the Communist Party. Lastly, there was Oppenheimer's lover, who was a known communist, and she was monitored by the CIA. Therefore, irrespective of his patriotic contribution, Oppenheimer must now face a loyalty panel. It is important to make a distinction between patriots and nationalists, I think, and so I'm going to say patriots and nationalists are not quite the same. They are closely connected like a pair of conjoined twins, but they aren't identical. Patriotism is considered to have socio-cultural roots as opposed to nationalism, which is a political belief. The film, however, draws us into a power struggle between the founding member of the AEC, the Atomic Energy Commission, Strauss, or Strauss, as he's referred to in the film, and Oppenheimer. And so the film goes down the whodunit lane as opposed to how and why, which is what I'd like to get into today. Oppenheimer's fears of nuclear acceleration or the nuclear race have come true. And with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the nuclear threat has never felt more real. Shortly after America's success in 1945, Russia got their bomb in 1949, then Britain in 1952, France in 1960, China in 1964, India in 1974, Pakistan in 1998, North Korea in 2006, and of course, Israel's hush-hush program, which they got sometime in between 1960 and 1979. If you pay careful attention to the dates, then you will notice that you can literally follow the fear trail. Once America had it, then Russia had to get it. Once Britain had it, then France had to get it. Once China had it, then India had to have it. And once India had it, then of course Pakistan had to have it too. 
Eventually, North Korea got it to bully South Korea and to keep the US at bay, and Israel has the bomb because it lives in constant fear of the entire region. As arrogant as Oppenheimer might have been, he was well aware that scientists around the world would eventually figure it out. But there were scientists who were brilliant enough and still indulged in nuclear proliferation. And that is a topic that is rarely discussed. While we are on the subject of films, I'd like to give a shout here to watch Red Joan, with the brilliant Judy Dench, who plays the role of Joan Stanley, a British spy who leaks secrets for conscientious reasons. Many of the early spies truly believed that a counterpower was needed to stop America from being in supreme control. Little did they think that their actions would lead to a race driven by fears. The early atomic spies of the 50s, 60s and even the 70s were conscientious spies who didn't really do it for money. However, by the 80s, one nuclear scientist saw a potential business model and began selling nuclear secrets and technology to some of the most dangerous despots of the world. Abdul Qadir Khan was undoubtedly one of Pakistan's most brilliant scientists, but unfortunately he was not above stealing. In the 70s, Khan had worked at Urenko in the Netherlands where he stole the P1 and P2 centrifuge designs. When Fritz Wehrmann, a colleague he was working with, blew the whistle on him, nothing came out of it. Back in the 70s, the Dutch secret services known as the Binnenlandse Veiligheidsdienst were so focused on Soviet spies that Khan simply slipped through the cracks. Abdul Qadir Khan approached Iraq, Syria, and by 2000 his clients included Libya and North Korea. Khan visited North Korea 13 times and bartered ballistic missiles for uranium technology. In fact, in December 1993, Benazir Bhutto, the then Prime Minister of Pakistan, on her official visit to Pyongyang, returned home with the design for the North Korean Roding missile, which closely resembled Pakistan's Ghari missile. Bhutto maintained it was purely transactional. Pakistan back then too was a debt-ridden society, but it was Benazir Bhutto's father, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who had famously said, we will eat grass for years if we have to, but we will build the bomb. Pakistan's bomb was dubbed the Islamic bomb, and shortly after they successfully tested their bomb, Khan went into sales of nuclear technology with the blessing of the Pakistani establishment. The CIA was well aware of Dr. Khan's spin-off business, but these were the Clinton years, and then again Pakistan was an ally of America. But when George Bush Jr. assumed office, the CIA finally followed their leads and raided a cargo ship that was carrying centrifuge-related equipment to Libya. Fortunately for all of us, and thanks to very good diplomacy, Gaddafi gave up his ambitions to make the bomb in 2003 in exchange for closer working ties with the West. In 2011, however, NATO's controversial intervention of Libya led to Gaddafi's death in a ditch. What seemed to be a great day for democracy left dictators all over the world with the view that nuclear disarmament was for the weak. NATO might have never set foot in Libya had Gaddafi held on to the bomb. No despot or dictator would now negotiate. Instead, he would only dig his heels in for a fight to the bitter end. 
I wonder how many of us realized that Libya informed us in March 2023 that the 2.5 tons of uranium missing during the intervention were finally found. The race for nuclear bombs is still on and Oppenheimer was right. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has put the nuclear threat back on the table. But how many people realize that the quintessential part of the Russian bomb is the Arabelle turbine, which is a proud flagship of French technology? For those of you who follow French politics, you may remember that Monsieur Macron had styled himself as the Jupiterian president of France. Macron claimed he would remain unchallenged and detached from trivialities. Odd, then, that the Jupiterian Macron was challenged by a mere mortal Putin and was rendered powerless. For those of you who wish to understand more about President Macron and the nuclear dossier, I'd suggest you read Mark Entwelt, the brilliant French investigative journalist, and his book Guerre Cachée. As the Dutch whistleblower Fritz Wehrmann puts it, if Iran ever manages to destroy Israel, they could put on the weapon made in Holland. In that same vein, if Russia ever uses the bomb, it should say, from Paris, with love. For the text version of this and all other references, please visit my substack at alivrouvert.substack.com. Thank you for tuning in.